Welcome, friends and enemies, fans, stands, and simps. Welcome to Gil's Oddcast. I'm Gillian, pagan, pan, poly, vegan, kink-friendly, sex-positive, true-crime-obsessed, PCOS, ADHD, mom of 15 fur kids, and four human spawn, Twitch streamer, artist, and goth kitten with depression and anxiety. This podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. The content within this podcast contains themes that some individuals may consider triggering, offensive, or disturbing. The intent is not to disrespect listeners or any individuals spoken about herein. Listener discretion is advised. Today is Monday, March 6, 2023, and welcome to Murder Mystery Mondays. Today... The only international observance is World Tennis Day. And I will admit right now, peeps, I have no clue about tennis. I was never really interested in it beyond wasting time in gym. (laughs) So I don't have much to say about it. Grab your short white skirt and come join us. (laughs) Today, we are going to discuss the world's youngest serial killers. You will be surprised at how young these serial killers are. And one of them might not technically be a serial killer, depending on which serial killer definition you use. If you remember the first episode I did here, I did explain that there have been multiple definitions for serial killers. And depending on the organization or the investigator, it depends on them which definition they use. So technically, the third one may or may not be a serial killer, depending on which definition you use. The world's youngest serial killer is Amarjeet Sada. He was born into poverty to a laborer and his wife in 1998, and in 2004, they moved to the village of Bashahar in Bihar, India. He murdered his first victim at only seven years old. His first victim was his cousin. His aunt worked, so she dropped the girl off to be watched by Amarjeet's mom. On a summer day in 2006, Amarjeet's mom left him to watch the girl while she ran to the market. He watched the girl sleep for a while before strangling her with his bare hands. The girl fought back, but the boy did not relent, enjoying her struggles until she fell still. He dragged her body to the backyard and used a piece of brick to beat her head in until her skull cracked open. Then he buried her in the backyard. He admitted to the crime to his mother when she got home. She tried to unbury the girl with her hands. When Amarjeet's father came home, he tied the boy to a pole and beat him hard. To protect their son, his parents fell to Amarjeet's aunt's feet and begged pardon for their son's mistake. Amarjeet's aunt forgave him. Later, one of his uncles would admit that Sada's family knew about his first two murders, but they decided not to report them because they viewed the circumstances as, quote, family matters, as his second victim was his baby sister. Pretty soon after he took his cousin's life, his mother had given birth to a baby girl. Amarjeet's mom tried to infuse messages to him, like, you have to protect your sister. Unfortunately, it did no good. He saw the baby as an intrusion on the quiet life he had shared with his parents previously. One afternoon when the family was sleeping, Amarjeet walked up to the baby and strangled her to death at eight months old. He put the baby back in bed and continued to play with his toys. When his mother went to feed the baby later, she realized the baby was dead and she asked the boy if he had killed her. Amarjeet very calmly said yes. 
His dad beat him once more. The family yet again declined to report Amarjeet's violent murder. Just a little while later, a villager called Chun Chun Devi left her six-month-old baby, Kushbu, in the primary school to be watched while she was doing chores. The baby was asleep. When she came back to pick up her baby, the girl was missing. Villagers and police searched for the infant. One of Amarjeet's relatives, who was aware of his past crimes, guided them to where the children of the village were playing and called Amarjeet over. Amarjeet denied any knowledge at first, but eventually led police to Kushbu's remains. The boy had hit her with bricks and strangled her before hiding the body. At the police station, the boy was at home, calm, and seemingly happy, swinging his feet and looking around, curiously. When the police asked Amarjeet if he had killed Kushbu, he replied, Give me a packet of biscuits and I will tell you. After getting his biscuits, Amarjeet explained he had taken Kushbu when no one was paying attention at the primary school and exactly what he did to her. He further narrated his earlier exploits with no hesitation or emotion. The boy seemed so cold-blooded. The laws in India at the time didn't allow minors to be charged with crimes. He was sent to a juvenile home in an isolated room where he would live until the age of 18. The doctors who treated Amarjeet noted his psychopathy and said he was a sadist who derived pleasure from harming others. He had no empathy or regret or guilt. He was given treatment while he resided at the juvenile home. One only hopes that Amarjeet Sada was fully rehabilitated because he was released as a free man upon his 18th birthday and is now free in India with a new identity. He is 24 and hopefully hasn't committed any more crimes to date. I'm back y'all with our second kitty serial killer. His name is Cayetano Santos Gandino. And if he'd been successful the first time he tried to kill someone, he would have been the youngest. But because of getting caught before he actually killed, he comes in as the second youngest serial killer in the world. He was born on October 31st. 1896 to a syphilitic alcoholic father who was known for his cruelty especially to his wife and eight sons the syphilis was passed on to Cayetano and it left him to suffer a host of maladies from birth including enteritis that left him afflicted with rickets due to malnutrition a later medical exam revealed more than 27 scars on his head from the beatings he suffered at his father's hands from a young age godino was a delinquent he liked to kill small animals and dabbled in pyromania so we can see here the thing i talked about in the first podcast the mcdonald's triad this boy has two of the three triad signs pyromania playing with fire and killing or harming small animals. I did try to look up to see if there was the third triad of bedwetting, but there was nothing online about whether he had an issue with it or not. And also we have a head injury. Like I mentioned, the head injuries that would ruin areas that could help with impulse control and the ability to discern right from wrong. 27 scars on his head from beatings tells me his head was put through a lot of trauma. So on top of all of this, Cayetano was also violent in school and was expelled six times. He was also teased and bullied a lot in school because of how he looked, because 
of the malnutrition. They gave him the nickname El Petiso Orayudo, which translates to the big-eared midget, because he was very short, and he did have large ears that protruded from the side of his head. So, being expelled from school six times at an early age, he never learned to read and write until later in life when he was in prison. Cayetano tried killing his first victim at the age of seven. The victim was only two years old. He beat Miguel de Paoli and tossed him in a ditch full of thorns. A witnessing police officer took both boys down to the station to wait to be picked up by their moms. A year later, Godino used a rock to beat an 18-month-old named Anne Neri. Again, a police officer intervened, taking Cayetano to the jail, but the boy was released without charges because of his age. It feels like with Cayetano Godino, many times judges and those in authority would look at him and basically treat him as an example of boys will be boys. And I think this was a big mistake because when he was nine, after his father complained to the police because Cayetano had left a box with canaries he'd killed, plucked, and removed the eyes from next to his father's bed, an officer brought him before a judge, but Cayetano was only reprimanded and sent home to his parents. And that same year, nine-year-old Godino escalated to murder after he killed a lot of small animals with a friend named Alfredo Tercy. They would go around the neighborhood killing birds and kittens. So at nine, Godino killed a three-year-old girl, but the murder went undetected until years later when he finally confessed his crime to the police. He told them he'd taken the girl to Rio de Janeiro Street and attempted to strangle her, but he failed. Instead, he buried her in a ditch and covered the shallow grave with cans, leaving her there to suffocate and die. And unfortunately, when the police went to go check it out, they found out that a house had been built over the spot that Godino told them that he'd buried the girl. And without a body, the police reviewed missing persons reports and found that on March 29, 1906, a report for a three-year-old girl named Maria Rosa Fosse was filed at the local 10th police station. The missing girl was never found. But the weirdest thing about Godino is the first time he ended up in jail, it wasn't because of violence that he exhibited towards others. It was because when he was 10 years old, his parents discovered that he was a chronic masturbator. And back then, it was illegal where they lived in Buenos Aires. So because masturbation was illegal and his parents busted him, his father went ahead and contacted the police about the situation. And the assumption is this was a last-ditch effort to get help for the violent child, more so than because of the actual masturbation. They were more worried about all the other stuff he was doing. It did work for a little while. He was sent to jail for two months. Therefore, he couldn't do the things he'd been doing. Unfortunately, jail didn't seem to dissuade Godino from doing other crimes. He escalated and he attacked two more children. He attempted to drown Severino Gonzalez Calo and he burned the eyelids of Julio Bate with a cigarette. He was turned over to the police by his parents again, hoping that they would do something to help with this situation. Jail him for longer. Give him a more serious punishment. So at this time in 1908, the 12-year-old Godino was sent to Colonia for minors in Marcos Paz. And unfortunately, it didn't rehabilitate him at all. The state there only made him hardened and increased his need for violence. It escalated him more. So after three years there, he was sent back home 
And at this point, he became bolder. He started drinking heavily, and he purposefully hung out with the worst of the worst deviants and predators just like himself. On January 17, 1912, after he turned 15, Godino set a warehouse on fire. He gave the excuse that he liked to see the firefighters working and enjoyed it when they fell in the fire and got hurt. He only said that years later in an interview. He didn't tell that to them initially. But he also told the same interviewer that he had been very happy to assist them in putting out the fires he had set by fetching buckets of water for them. About a week later, on January 26, 1912, the half-naked body of 13-year-old Arturo Lorona was discovered in an abandoned house. He'd been beaten and strangled to death with a heavy string. And then less than a month and a half after that, in March, Godino lit a five-year-old, Reina Vanikoff, on fire. He lit her dress on fire while she was looking in a store window. A nearby policeman attempted to put out the flames, but it was too late. The girl didn't recover. She died 16 days later. And her grandfather, who saw her on fire and tried to run over to save her, was hit by a car and died of his injuries. So you could say Godino was responsible for two deaths that day. On July 16th of the same year, he set fire to a corral in Gray. And then in September, while working as an errand boy for some local merchants, he stabbed a horse to death in a stable. Two days later, he set fire to a tram station. And on November 8th, 1912, a two-year-old boy named Roberto Carmelo Russo disappeared while playing with his older brother. Several minutes later, a guard found the young boy tied up in a vacant lot. Next to him was a very small boy with large ears who had claimed he had just found him and was untying him. The boy turned out to be a Godino and was arrested and charged with attempted murder, but was released pending the trial. While waiting, he attacked another three-year-old, Carmen Gitano, on November 16th. The child escaped with only minor wounds because a police officer intervened there as well. Four days later, Godino attempted to kidnap a two-year-old named Carolina Neoliner off of her front doorstep but she cried so loudly that it alerted a neighbor who rescued her. The same month, Godino set fire to two large sheds. And then on December 3rd, 1912, less than two months after Godino's 16th birthday, he lured three-year-old Jesualdo Giordano away from where he played in his front yard by offering him candy. He promised him more sweets if he came with him, and then he took him to a dump. The site was formerly a brick kiln. Once he was there, he threw the boy down and began strangling him with a thin string, which he wound around the boy's neck 13 times and pulled tight. When the strangling failed to kill the boy, Godino went ahead and drove a four-inch nail through his right temple with a nearby stone until the tip pierced through the parietal lobe. Godino even had the nerve to attend the child's wake. He is said to have touched the skull of the boy where he placed the nail, wanting to see if it was still there. Police quickly suspected Godino, but they didn't want to believe that this child was so violent and just evil. But as other suspects were considered and dismissed, they were able to secure a witness that had seen Godino walking hand in hand with the boy the day of the murder. The police then searched his house and found evidence that included portions of the string used and clippings of the murder from the local news, despite Godino's inability to read at that point. Godino was finally arrested on January 4th, 1913 and taken to Hospicio de la Mercedes, a mental hospital, pending his trial. So instead of leaving him free like they 
did up till this point. They now have him in a mental hospital. There, he tried to kill, again, twice, a bedridden invalid and another person confined to a wheelchair. So the facility was forced to move him to isolated quarters so that he couldn't attempt to murder anyone else. His trial lasted two long years. During that time, some of the most well-known figures in criminal psychiatry spoke with Godino. Curious to see what the man described as a human beast by the press was really like and what was making him tick. The public wanted him killed, but because he was still a minor, that wasn't a punishment that was allowed. Instead, they prosecuted him for the murders of Arturo Reina Bonita Vanikoff and Hesualdo Giordano and 11 assaults on other children, some of whom were not publicly named, I assume, because they were minors. He was not prosecuted for the death of Maria Rosa Fosse, despite his confession, because her body could not be recovered to prove that it was his crime. The doctors that attended Godino said he was to be considered an imbecile or a moral madman. And they said his degenerate behavior stemmed from a lack of affection, limited intelligence, and a chronic impulsive behavior. The doctors further stated that Godino had a conscious and memory of a destructive impulse, but labeled him a hereditary degenerate. He felt that Godino's sadism was a reflection of the same violence displayed towards him by his father. So we're looking at the cycle of abuse and how it plays out generationally. Godino himself would say that he committed his crimes because he was controlled by another force that dominated him, making his head hurt, and the pain would only go away if he hit or killed someone. But there was never any signs of epilepsy or any other neurological defects that would cause that kind of sensation. So, in 1914, he was sentenced to spend a life in an isolated cell at National Penitentiary. There, he learned to read and write, as well as basic math skills like addition and subtraction. He remained there until March 28, 1923, and then he was transferred to a newly commissioned penitentiary. This penitentiary, Ushua, I don't know how to pronounce it, Ushua, U-S-H-U-A-I-A penitentiary, would become known as one of the harshest prisons in the world. It's been compared to San Quentin or the Russian prisons in Siberia. So, Gadina was interviewed by Jose Maria Souza Riley in 1933, and he revealed that he'd been badly beaten by other inmates for killing two cats that they deemed their pets. It was the beginning of declining health, though whether from natural causes or as a result of the continued abuse from other inmates is unclear. He also told Riley that the prison had given him surgery in an attempt to flatten his ears, believing that the protruding state somehow bore the evil that consumed him. Like, I don't even get where that comes from, but sure. By 1935, he's no longer allowed to receive visitors because of his ill health. He did file for an appeal in 1936, and it was denied. He ended up dying on November 15, 1944, at the age of 48. His death certificate said he died from internal bleeding resulting from advanced gastritis, but some claimed that the bleeding was caused by repeated beatings and sexual assault at the hands of other inmates. Most thought it was a good end for someone that had committed so many crimes against so many innocent children during his relatively short, free lifespan. The other thing about Godino is it's said that his bones were never located in the local cemetery. Certain people claim that the wife of the last director had a paperweight made from his femur and that others might have similar artifacts, but nobody's been able to confirm it, so it might just be a rumor. So if he had succeeded, he would have been the youngest serial killer. Not that he didn't start fairly young. (laughs) 
youngest serial killer is Mary Bell. Now this case is more famous than the other two that we covered, but it's an interesting case nonetheless. And as I was researching this, a lot of the serial killers that I was finding were like teenagers and above. So these three are definitely the youngest at 8, 9, and 10. Mary Bell was born on May 26, 1957 to Betty McCricket, a 16-year-old sex worker who reportedly told doctors to take that thing away from me when she saw her daughter. Ms. McCricket was not a good mother at all. There's all kinds of conjecture over whether she had Munchausen's by proxy, the illness where parents will injure their children for the attention that they get when the child is ill or perceived as sick, or if she was actually just trying to get rid of Mary. She fed her sleeping pills and all kinds of accidents and injuries happened to Mary as a baby and a young child. McCricket also tried to give Mary away to a woman who had been trying to adopt. The sister recovered Mary back and McCricket would leave her for long periods of time by herself at home. Now, when Mary discussed her childhood, she did tell everyone that her mother began to use her for sex work when she was just four years old. She used to pimp her out to her clients. So Mary suffered a lot in her young life, and it's never an excuse for a child or an adult to murder because of what they went through, but it can help you kind of understand the mindset. Mary Bell was very much on wanted and unloved and treated really, really shitty. She also saw her five-year-old friend when she was that age run over and killed by a bus. So she experienced a lot of trauma and saw a lot of things that she shouldn't have seen at a young age. By the time Mary was 10, she'd become the strange child in the area, withdrawn and manipulative, and she was always hovering on the edge of violence. She was obsessed with death. On May 11th, 1968, Mary was playing with a three-year-old boy, and he was badly injured from a fall from the top of an air raid shelter but his parents thought it was an accident now looking back it's determined that she was attempting to injure him the following day three mothers came forward to tell police that mary had attempted to choke their young daughters a brief police interview and a lecture resulted but no charges were filed again the police are looking at this as a child that's causing mayhem and will give them a warning and let them off on may 25th mary bell strangled four-year-old martin brown to death in an abandoned house in scottswood england she left after she murdered the boy and then returned with her friend norma bell who's not related to her even though they have the same last name when they got there there were already two boys there who had been playing in the house and had stumbled upon the body the police were mystified besides a little bit of blood and saliva on the victim's face there was no apparent signs of violence there was however an empty bottle of painkillers on the floor near the body so with no further clues the police assumed that martin brown had swallowed the pills and they ruled his death an accident days after martin's death mary bell appeared on the brown's doorstep and she knocked and asked to see the boy his mom gently explained that martin was dead thinking that this was a child who just hadn't heard the news but mary said she knew that and she wanted to see his body in the coffin his mom slammed the door in her face and quite honestly i don't blame her shortly after that mary and norma broke into a nursery school and vandalized it 
with graffiti admitting to the murder. If you want to see it, you can Google it. Obviously, it's graffiti from two 10-year-olds, so it's very much misspelled and very messy looking. It says, we did murder Martin Brown. It looks like they tried to put fuck off, but it says fuck of you bastard is one of them. The other one has a word I won't use because it's a slur for the alphabet mafia. They wrote on these walls and promised to kill again. On the other piece of graffiti, it says, look out, there are murders about, I think they meant to say about to happen, but they, they left that out. So they threatened to kill more and admitted to murdering Martin Brown. The police assumed that it was a prank. Apparently, the nursery school had had issues with break-ins and vandalism before. It was just treated it as the latest and most disturbing in a series of break-ins and they installed an alarm system and several nights later mary and norma were caught at the school but this time they were just loitering outside when the police arrived so they were given a warning and let go mary did run around and tell everyone that she had murdered martin brown but she had a reputation for being a show-off and a chronic liar so none of her classmates thought it was true but then another young boy turned up dead. On July 31st, two months after the first murder, Mary Bell and Norma killed a three-year-old. His name was Brian Howe. He was strangulated. This time, Bell escalated to mutilating the body. She used scissors, she scratched his thighs, and she butchered his penis. She also carved an M into his chest. When Brian's sister went looking for him, Mary and Norma offered to help. They did search the neighborhood, and Mary even boldly pointed out where she had hid his body but Norma basically waved it off and said he wouldn't be there so the sister moved on. When the body was found the neighborhood was in a panic. Two little boys were killed so the police went around and interviewed local children hoping that they'd seen someone walk off. At this point they're assuming this is an adult who's walking off with children and harming them but when the coroner's report came back for Brian there was lack of force in the attack so they had to surmise that Brian's killer might have been a child. And because of Mary and Norma being very obvious about things, like I said, Mary was running around telling people and they both tried to insert themselves in the investigation. During their interviews, they showed a whole lot of interest in what exactly was going on with it. And if you watch a lot of true crime, you'll realize that that's one of those signifiers that someone might be the perpetrator in how the investigation is going or inserting themselves the search and investigation in some is always seen as a sign of possible acted really excited and Mary was evasive especially when the pointed out that she'd been Brian Howe on the day of his death Brian was buried was spotted lurking outside his house and she was weird things laughing and Brian's together when she saw his coffin. So in this the police called Mary back for a second interview and she saw an eight year old boy with Brian on the day he died and that the boy had broken scissors. And that was fake. It was a huge mistake. Police had not put out the detail to anyone scissors had been on this boy's body didn't know about it and Mary shouldn't have known about it. It was a detail to the investigators and one other person, the murderer. So Mary ended up breaking down under questioning. Norma cooperated with an implicated Mary who for the murder. 
both the girls and they set a trial date. Said that Bell's reason for committing the murders was solely for the pleasure and of killing, and the bird to her as evil born committed both the murders and they did hand down a guilty verdict but they only gave mary manslaughter not murder because courts had convinced them that mary bell showed sick symptoms of psychopathy which means she couldn't be held fully responsible for her actions and uh, was seen as an unwilling accomplice who had fallen under bad influence so norma got fully acquitted to give Barry an open sentence that they had in Britain at the time. It was called being imprisoned, quote, at her pleasure. So the term in the UK is to an indeterminate sentence. It's when they can't decide how long to imprison them for. Ended up getting 12 years treatment and rehabilitation. So she was let out in 1980. But she was released, which meant she had technically still serving the sentence, but was able to do so while living in the community under a strict probation. So it's like when that real identity because she was a child when she committed her crime. So they did want to give her a new life and to protect her from the press. But that happening, she's still forced to move several times because tabloids and newspapers and the general public would find ways of tracking her down and it got a child in 1984 her daughter didn't until she was 14 because a tabloid paper found bell's common law husband and tracked them both down camping out at her house and the family they put sheets over their heads to get out of the house and not have to deal with the press it is in protect a secret address both she and her daughter remain anonymous and are protected under court order and her victims parents don't feel like she deserves the protection essentially they're talking about how it's unfair that she has to be protected and her victims weren't given like that rights as the killers are is pretty much famous child serial killer and as i said at the beginning there's debate over whether she would be considered a serial killer depending on which definition you use but we're going to for this podcast include her as one of the world's youngest serial killers there is no doubt that she would have continued killing if she had not been caught um unfortunately she was a psychopath and all of what as a small child warped her um, rotated. It sounds like she is from everything I've read. So that's good. I am not upset just because someone committed a crime. Even some of these that are pretty bad, but especially committing a crime as a child, case is hopeless. Um, and our prison system isn't a good example, but we see other countries. I've watched documentaries and the prison systems in places like I want to say it was Norway, and it might have been Finn. It was, it was like those prison systems are just awesome. They're, they actually treat like humans. They need to rehabilitate on every level. They are given jobs when they're in prison, and they aren't the you get paid three pennies a day to do shit work kind of jobs. 
They are given real jobs. They are given training. They are given education. They are given psychological treatment if they need it. They are given rehab if they need it. They are treated and respect a whole human being. And I think that's what's missing in our current justice in the United States. We just throw them away. We, and you know, he's trying to cut financial court and you end up where you're just throwing all these violent and nonviolent offenders into this big ass and, you know, really educate. They don't really rehabilitate. They don't do any of those things. So here in the United States, we see a huge number of recidivism. We see in offenses over and over and over again because we don't like people. We don't try to actually rehabilitate them. We're like, you're being punished. You were bad, naughty. We're going to treat you as shitty as we absolutely can. We're going to let you guys treat each other as shitty as you absolutely can. And we're going to let the guards treat you as shitty as they can. And then we expect you to come out and be a whole new person when you have no reason to be. And... In more cases than not, you come out worse than you went in and have been taken away from you. In those other countries where they do these rehabilitations, the prisoners can have normal lives after they're released. In the United States, good luck finding a job if you've served time in good, you know, things normal which means then you fall behind in all your bills, which means then you end up homeless, which means then you end up back in jail because your probation officer, if you don't have an address, can shove you back in jail. So the cycle where we have, they're just being put in a revolving door of prison. I do apologize for this, but I'm very passionate about all this uh, stuff to my passion for true crime. But yeah, Sal, and like I said, she's pretty much the most famous child murderer, child serial killer, just about anywhere. Like, the other two I'd never heard of until I started researching for this episode, but Mary... Hey, Gillian here. I want to sincerely thank you guys for joining me here at Gil's Oddcast. This creative project is something that I've been considering doing for a while, and I'm so happy to see that there are people enjoying it. I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast as much as you've enjoyed the past ones, and I hope that you guys have a great day. You take care of yourselves, and take care of each other. And as always, my social media links and other creative project links are in the description of this episode it's linktree slash gillian so l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash g-i-l-l-e-o-i-n and that has links to everything to my twitch to um, my various social media accounts and stuff that i do if you like my voice or the way I talk, you might want to check me out on Twitch for sure. I'm on there at least a few times a week. I have a schedule and you can watch me play video games and do really bad at it, but have lots of fun. You guys are awesome. Have a great day. Bye.